Welcome back to the Christopher Gabinette Show Politics AMV Gates America Vigates, how's your German? United States of America strong. Smells strong, yes. Anyway, let's see what's going on with Trump going to freaking jail. Okay, top prosecutor up with business. We just listened to that. Uh, Brian Tyler Cohen. Uh, morning Joe Headlights. 1027. One hour ago. Morning Joe Headlights. He highlights. So, shout out to KAMP Student Radio at the University of Arizona. In Two Stones. And KPYT. Quiet Tribal Radio on the res with Trista Show. Let's see what's going on with this stupid blowhard Nazi prick. In the latest survey from CBS News and YouGov, 87% of registered voters say the legal system should treat Trump the same. 87%! That's awesome news. Trump almost have voting to oppose Trump, 32% voting to support Trump, 20%. Ah, it's only 20% is going to support Trump. Americans that he's going to be held accountable. 
Yeah, and it's heartening, is it not, to see that 80% of Republicans still believe in the rule of law, whether it's Donald Trump or someone else, that if you commit a crime, there are consequences to that, even if you're the former president of the United States. Eight in ten Republicans, as Mika just told us, believe you should be held to that standard, which, just anecdotally, is not what you hear on the street. They all come from the what we're hearing from, from Republicans, by the way, as well, not just people on the street. The document thing was a housekeeping issue. It was a storage issue, trying to wave that away. Well, what the American people, almost 9 out of 10, are saying, Michael Steele, is no, that stuff is serious, and if he did it, he ought to be held accountable. By the way, we're going to hear much more about Michael Steele beginning tomorrow at a, a new hearing from the January 6th Select Committee. So all of these questions around the 2020 election will be top of mind again as we get closer and closer here to the midterms. Really, this is such a, a significant movement uh, in this narrative uh, that Donald Trump, for as we've seen going back to Mueller investigations, uh, was able to manage, was able to divert attention from uh, the main arguments that were made being made against him. Now that I'm home uh, in, in a very serious way, and I think largely because of the effectiveness of the January 6th committee, with the combination of Letitia James and Georgia prosecutors sort of creating a pincer move narratively uh, with facts um, and with uh, a higher degree of evidence that while a lot of people thought that the American people were sort of, you know, it's summer, we're at the beach, who cares, you know? No, they were actually paying attention. They were actually taking a lot of this in, and I think that's reflective in this, in this polling. You know, and so Republicans now have another narrative problem. You know, while they want to be dismissive as this was just a storage issue with Mar-a-Lago, the American people don't see it that way. And so how do you narratively uh, translate that so that you don't get on the wrong side of their attitude when it comes to the ballot box in, in four or five weeks? So there are a number of things that are playing out here with the committee coming, the January 6th committee coming back in front of our television screens uh, tomorrow. This narrative picks up a little bit of hiccup with uh, Denver Riggleman and his revelations uh, um, about phone call records at the White House. But I think they're going to seize that narrative back, um, and this is going to proceed and really, I think, make for an interesting fall um, narrative relative to the campaign is if people continue to digest this in the way that they have so far, uh, it will be interesting to see whether or not this weighs on their vote just a little bit more than you would think they, that they're saying right now. After January the 6th, uh, I thought you wrote a really important article for The Atlantic talking about attempting to bring Former supporters, I'm wondering 
what you're seeing now uh, in these numbers that we've been discussing and, and, and also just the general attitudes of Republicans uh, about whether we're moving in that direction or not, whether there may be enough Americans skeptical of what Donald Trump done since the election uh, we have a majority now saying that he committed a crime uh, that, that perhaps what you wanted to happen is slowly beginning to happen around the margins so there's clearly a kind of hardcore that doesn't watch the January the 6th hearings that dismisses them as illegitimate um, that's very resistant to any kind of persuasion um, but what the January 6th hearings did really well was use the language of Republicans, and especially of Republicans who worked for Trump, to tell the story. Uh, and this seems to have been a deliberate idea. They, um, they, they, they made Liz Cheney the center of the, of, the, of the panel. She was one of the primary speakers. But also the interviewees, the clips they used, Trump's children, Trump's employees, um, other Republicans from, from Congress. They were telling the story, and because they are um, trusted messengers, or more trusted messengers, or could be trusted messengers anyway, uh, to Republicans, it does seem that some of them were listening. Um, this is a this is a hard problem: how to reach people who are in a different information bubble, or who reject, um, you know, re you know, who are rejecting what's being told to them um, by even media like this one, or maybe. particularly media like this one. Um, and so finding ways to reach them is something that a lot of politicians are, should be spending more time doing. And I was really glad to see the January 6th committee took that into account. They were trying to write the story. They were trying to tell it in a way people could understand. And as I said, especially using the language of people who worked for Trump himself. And that was, a, that was an attempt to um, reach people who would normally not listen. Well, and, and, and you know, Willie, what I always tell my friends who generally talk about the mainstream media, it's a, it's a, read the Wall Street Journal. It's owned by Rupert Murdoch. Read the editorial pages of the New York Post. Like, they, they will, uh, you know, I won't agree with what, what they say uh, all the time, but again, look at some of these Murdoch things. Look at if, if you're talking about how the election was rigged. Even going to the website of Fox News. Well, I have a quick moment between campaign stops. I need to personally ask you for your donation. We've got a clip here where we hear Roger Stone calling for political violence. Let's take a look at that and then we'll talk. Roger Stone documentary. Excellent. <laughs> Who the fuck is that? Say that. So, so give us a context of that clip, if you will. Well, we were returning for, uh, from a rally. 
extension in Georgia. And as, as I think most people recall, the, the days before the election were extremely tense. And I think this was an expression uh, of frustration with, with, the, with the expectation of the pending defeat of, of Donald Trump. So he reportedly followed those statements by saying he was, quote, kidding. Um, but let's take a look at another clip where we hear Roger Stone laying out the plan to challenge and discredit the election results, no matter what happens. Listen. What they're assuming is will be normal. Oh, these are the California results? Sorry, we're not accepted. We're challenging them in court. If the electors show up at the Electoral College, our guards will throw them out. I'm the president. You're not stealing for you're not stealing I'm challenging all of it, and the judges we're going to are judges I appointed. You. You're not stealing the election. Former President Trump declared victory in the 2020 election before a final result was announced, just like that. In this next scene, we hear Roger Stone explain that was the plan all along. Let's just hope we're celebrating. Oh, <laughs> I suspect it will still be up in the air. When that happens, the key thing to do is to claim victory. Possession is nine-tenths of law. No, we won. F*** you. Sorry, over. We won. You're wrong. F*** you. And finally, you asked Roger Stone if Trump was willing to go along with the plan to upend the election. Let's watch what he told you. So, so, so that's the concept. Has it been pitched to the president? Yes, it has. I believe the president's for it. The obstacles <laughs> are, these, are these lily-livered... Uh, we need uh, bureaucrats in the White House counsel's office, and now they must be crushed because they told the president something that's not true. So, Frederick, what was your understanding about how close Roger Stone was during those weeks, those important months up to and after the election to Donald Trump? Did he really have his ear? Was he helping along with Steve Bannon and others to push this idea on President Trump? How often were they talking when you were around didn't communicate directly with Trump while we were together with him, but he, I mean, he, you could sense that he was uh, communicating a lot with aides around uh, the Trump campaign. We were with him uh, when he launched Stop His Deal on January 5th, where he was uh, communicating with Michael Flynn and uh, other, like, you know, characters. Uh, I know that he was also communicating directly with people on the campaign. So, Frederick, let's talk a little bit about Stone there. It is remarkably, he's remarkably candid there. He's just flat out saying, this is what we're going to do. Um, you know, Stone is obviously this very flamboyant political character. He's been in Trump's for life for a really long time. Did you have any sense at all that while he was talking to you, that he knew what he was saying was wrong or illegal? Or did he just feel like this is the power of the president's? We can strong arm our way to stay in office. I got a sense that the... That I mean that that they, that he thought that they could get away with it, and uh, and they were in the right to do it. But he has this, as as with Trump, they have this sort of win at all cost mentality. So I don't think that they take those things into account, to be honest. So Christopher, as we said a minute ago, we're going to see clips from your documentary from the select committee, from the January 6th select committee in Congress. You guys were subpoenaed for that information. Initially, uh, you told the Washington Post you were reluctant to provide that material. What was that reluctance about and why ultimately did you hand it over? 
Well, I think uh, as journalists, we, we our starting point is to stay in our own lane. There's a political sphere, there's a law enforcement fear, sphere, and then there is uh, journalism. So, so that was where our, our hesitance came from. But of course, when you receive a subpoena from, from the United States Congress, it's something uh, you take very seriously. And I think their, their, their work has been, I think you cannot overstate the importance of the work they have done. And, and, and the success they had with uncovering what really went off. So, so for me, it was impossible to... Uh-oh. What happens? Oh, no. No. To defend, not to contribute when, when we had material that could help them uh, solve their, their, their objective. Christopher uh, Galbranskin and Frederick Marbell, thank you very much. The documentary, A Storm Foretold, is expected to be featured in tomorrow's January 6th committee hearing. Thank you for coming on the show this morning. I should listen to it. Hey, myself. I'm going to let you in on a secret about how to reveal sensitive a information storm foretold. on anyone with just their phone number. Thank you for coming on the show this morning. Let's bring into the conversation Democratic Senator Amy Klobuchar of Minnesota. She's chair of the Senate Rules Committee, which will meet today to mark up a bill to reform the Electoral Count Act. Senator, good morning. It's good to have you with us. Um, I think we should take one step back for our viewers and remind people what the existing Electoral Count Act is. Uh, there's been some attention around it, obviously, in the last couple of years, and what you believe needs changing to it. Sure. And first, I want to thank you guys for being the check on the lies, the check on the conspiracy. Um, and part of being a check is the job we have to do today. And that is take an 1877 law put in place during the Rutherford B. Hayes era and make sure that we have a democracy and an process um, that basically reflects the will of the people because you know what happened January 6th is not just a day it was a day that we were counting the electoral college votes pretty much a ceremony but it became a rallying cry for the insurrectionists so what we're doing here is updating the law it's bipartisan Senator Collins and Manchin headed up a group of senators with Senator Blunt and I as heads of the rules committee working with them and today we're going to get this bill out of committee what it does makes it clear Vice President, ceremonial role in this game. And by the way, um, when those insurrectionists were 40 feet away from Mike Pence, yelling, hey, Mike Pence, Donald Trump was trying to use that old law in a way that wasn't correct. We're clarifying two. Two out of 535 people. That's all it takes to lodge an objection and create havoc uh, in this process. We're putting that number up in the Senate bill to 20%. Uh, number three, you can't have legislators after the fact creating slates of fake electors and we're clarifying that process and the fourth thing is a very clear appeals process so we're working together on this i predict a very strong vote out of the committee today good job amy oh shit what happens good job amy but we're proud of the work that we're doing here in the senate as you say, a current law allows one member of the Senate or one member of the House to stand up, and then the objection the objection is heard, and you all are looking to raise that threshold. Um, how are Republicans coming around to this? Are you you mentioned Susan Collins, but do you think you'll actually get enough votes in the Senate to change this law? 
to do. We already have 10 Republicans uh, on the bill. Um, I'll note that our committee is the only committee on which both uh, Senator McConnell and our leader, Senator Schumer, serve, as well as Ted Cruz. So what could go wrong today? Um, but overall, we keep adding senators to this bill, Democrats and Republicans. So again, really strong work by a bipartisan group of senators. Now it's our job to take it over the finish line. We're going to make some changes to the bill. Some of them reflect what was going on in the House. Um, some of them are our own unique way of handling this, and then we'll take it to the floor. Uh, we simply cannot allow people to manipulate an 1877 law, 1887 law, and basically use bayonets and bear spray to have their will and overturn the votes of the American people. That's what this vote is about today. Senator, um, by the way, we've been talking about this for some time, about how important it is that the Senate comes together and passes this legislation. I know it's one of the few things that the New York Times editorial page and the Wall Street Journal editorial page agreed on after January the 6th, and for good reason. I just wanted to underline that we, 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 we talk a good bit about Republicans, especially in the House, that twist the facts, twist the truth. I'd just like to stop for one moment. You live in a state where you've got a lot of Republicans in Minnesota, a lot of Democrats as well. Just want to stop. We're the only state with a split legislature in the country right now. So yes, continue. Yeah. Yes. I want to celebrate again another bipartisan achievement by this Congress over the past year, year and a half. And despite the fact that we are facing some grave structure bill, obviously uh, a small step forward on, on gun safety. Uh, I could list about five or six others, but you could list them better. Could you just talk about that? I, we always sort of get, get into our DBT session here and say two things can be true at one time. We could be facing a grave political crisis. Women could be facing a grave uh, a crisis when it comes to uh, their, their own control over their health care choices. And at the same time, Democrats and Republicans have figured out how to get quite a few things done over the past year and a half, more so than I think probably since you've gotten into the United States Senate. Exactly. This is our moment where we talk about, yes, a spacecraft can hit an asteroid 6.8 million <laughs> miles away uh, because we have defied the odds with this president and gotten things done. Bipartisan infrastructure bill. We're not just talking about it. Bridges are being built. Broadband is going out. Uh, we got past the Chips and Science Act, something you didn't mention. We're down to 12% of American production of chips, which are so important for everything from our phones to our refrigerators. Um, we pushed forward, as you noted, gun safety. We got Finland and Sweden near a unanimous vote in the Senate to get them into NATO. Uh, we've supported Ukraine and very strong votes in the Senate, including uh, the budget just came out this morning uh, to continue the government. Um, that includes that. Um, we have done many, many things on a bipartisan basis. And one, the president never gave up. He is persistent. And two, you've got leaders in Congress uh, like um, Senator Schumer and 
uh, Speaker Pelosi, as well as their Republicans that want to work with them, where we have been able to step by step by step push these bills through. And so um, I think so many times people counted us out, but we want to make clear we've got the backs of the American people. And while we have clear disagreements, we don't want, if the Republicans take charge, a number of them have been talking about abortion ban. You guys know that. You featured on the show. That's why we've got to win this midterm. We just did something about climate change for the first time in decades. That's why we've got to win this as that hurricane bears down on Florida. we got to win in the midterms. We understand that. But none of that has stopped us from deciding we're going to put our differences aside and get some things done. That is what that vote is today in the Rules Committee, um, where you're going to see a strong bipartisan support, a very good hearing for changes to the Electoral Count Act. jittery, I was anxious, it became really obvious to me that my coffee addiction was more something that was prescribed to me by culture than something that I wanted to continue. And I met more and more people who had a similar relationship to caffeine. I ended up swapping it out for this masala chai I found. I added lion's mane for focus and cognitive function, cacao for mood, energy, and of course flavor, chaga and reishi for immune support, turmeric cordyceps or physical performance, cinnamon, and a pinch of salt to help the flavors pop. This drink that really changed my life ultimately became it, and we would love for you to try it. Changes to the Electoral Count Act. Since the January 6th committee was formed, some Republican lawmakers have tried to discredit the panel through misinformation and far-right conspiracy theories. It happened again last week during a meeting of the House Judiciary Committee. Kentucky Republican Thomas Massey pushed a conspiracy theory about a man named Ray Epps. It is a baseless theory that claims Epps worked with the FBI to instigate the attack on the Capitol. That set off January 6th committee member Jamie Raskin, who called out Republicans. It was vetoed by the cult leader, Donald Trump, who said he wanted no investigation at all. That's your guy. Donald Trump, he said he wanted no investigation. And so you pulled the plug on the investigation you originally advocated because Donald Trump didn't want it. Let's tell some truth. Would you like You're to talking about truth effects? I'm giving you the truth. Just don't I'm me. giving you the facts about it. And then when Speaker Pelosi said, well, in that case, the House of Representatives will conduct our own investigation, then again, you guys boycotted it because you wanted to put pro-insurrection members on the committee. And so we ended up with a bipartisan committee of people really interested in getting to the facts. And you know what? This is what you guys can't stand. America listened to it because we had real congressional hearings. Unlike what goes on here with the temper tantrums and the diatribes, and too often our side gets pulled into what you guys are doing, but we had real hearings. 
and 25, 30 million Americans watching because we told the truth about Donald Trump's assault on democratic institutions and the right to vote in America. You know, Jonathan Lemire, in the first part of Jamie Raskin's uh, conversation there, he explains how they had come to an agreement with Republicans. They had actually sent uh, uh, their proposals to Republicans who were taking part in the process. And then, as he said, right as the clip began, uh, the cult leader, as he, as he called Donald Trump, the cult leader vetoed it. And this is just a self-owned by Republicans. They had a chance to actually participate in this process. And they said no to a bipartisan, bicameral uh, investigation when you had Joe Manchin really trying to apply pressure on Republicans who he was trying to work with, saying, come on, this is something you don't play politics with. You all should be involved in this for the betterment of the Senate the House, this country, they refused. And then, of course, you had House Republicans and Democrats talking together, working together, and Democrats passing proposals to Republicans who would send proposals back to Democrats, and they had actually agreed to work together, and then Donald Trump vetoed it. And so here we are with Republicans on the outside of this process and complaining about it, when time and time again they had an opportunity to participate and they they just refused to do it. So they turned this entirely over to the Democratic Party and Liz Cheney uh, and and uh, and Adam Kinzinger. Yeah, there are two distinct moments where Republicans were part of the process and bailed. First in the Senate, where it looked like this was going to be a bipartisan, bicameral probe into January 6th, and Mitch McConnell pulled the plug, in part because of the, out of fear of what Donald Trump might do. And another, other Republicans followed suit, the Ted Cruz's, Josh Hawley's of the world, and the Senate backed out. So suddenly, no more Senate. It was going to only be in the House, and House Speaker Pelosi put together this select committee and nominated some Republicans. Said we want slots for Republicans. But when she went to Kevin McCarthy and said, uh, and this is all detailed in my book, like who do you want here? He picked a bunch of election deniers, the Jim Jordans of the world, two or three of his ilk. And Pelosi was like, this will not stand. We cannot have people who tried to decertify election who have stood with Trump at the insurrection. We're not going to make them part of this committee. So she said, well, we could do it Democrats only, but we'd prefer. To be bipartisan. Two Republicans she got, Cheney and Kinzinger. And the two of them, in many ways, have really run this process. And that's what's been so powerful here. The only Republican voices we are hearing, those two lawmakers who both stood up to Trump and Republicans, some within Trump's own administration, who have all testified to what he did, painting damning accounts of his behavior leading up to and on January 6th. So that has not only made it effective arguments for the American people, but yes. Trump and his allies have been shut out of the process, and we know Trump has spent months stewing at this, blaming others, McCarthy, McConnell, take your pick, for sabotaging, he says, his efforts to defend himself, and he believes that's why it's such a one-sided proceedings. Of course, it's not one-sided. They're dealing in facts. This is what happened. Married people have been captivated by it. We'll see it again tomorrow. Well, it's facts versus conspiracy theories. Gene Robinson, that's one of the things Willie and I have talked about the frustration for some time, that friends that we've known, very educated people with advanced degrees, don't push a conspiracy theory about the rigged election. Uh, I've been patient. Mika knows, uh, has, has seen me doing this with friends. I'll patiently let my friends do it. I will give them
them links to Wall Street Journal uh, stories, Fox News stories, New York Post stories. And then they go, uh, okay, well, what about... Then they'll go to a COVID conspiracy. They will get it. Then they'll, no, they'll get it, and then they'll move to a COVID conspiracy. And then I'll patiently walk them through that. Then they'll go, well, what about the Russia hoax? And, and so it's always, it's whack-a-mole. And I bring that up just to say, Republicans are doing this on the national level. You, you have this Ray Epps story that is a conspiracy theory a complete lie that has been pushed by members of the Trump media, pushed by sitting members of Congress. They know it's a lie. It's just like the same lies that they were pushing about the IRS, where you have, is he perhaps the most senior Republican member in the United States Senate, saying after news was breaking badly for Donald Trump, about this investigation into stolen documents, you actually had a senior member of the United States Senate talking about IRS employees going to his home state with AR-15s kicking down doors and killing people. And poof, it was proven to be a lie. I'm sorry, let me just add one more. You had the investigation, and thank God I've forgotten his name already, but the dud of the investigation that was going to prove that the FBI acted horrifically. Um, who is the guy? He just he just wrapped up his investigation a couple of weeks ago. I can't believe I've forgotten his name already. Durham. is Durham. There's a Durham investigation. Do you remember that long, hot weekend of right-wing pro-Trump stories about, it's true. Hillary Clinton really did spy on Donald Trump. And then three days later, another lie just made it up out of whole cloth. But there's never a reversal. There's never an I'm sorry. Instead, they just do what Willie and my friends do. They move on to the next conspiracy theory. It's whack-a-mole. And so here, they're lying about this guy named Ray Epps, just like they were lying about two volunteers that were counting votes in Georgia destroyed their lives. They lie with impunity. They lie without consequences. And they're doing it again here on the high, in the highest level of American politics. Yeah, it, it keeps happening, and this whole problem of, of, of deliberate disinformation is 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 a is a threat. It's a moral threat to the very idea of democracy because you need um, you, you need to have a common set of facts. You need to have a common narrative, and then argue about what it what it means and what we should do, and this and that. And they've just completely um, uh, done away with that. And it's um, you know that that period is fascinating. That the, the earlier discussion, that period between January 6th and the next month or two, when the Republican Party had the opportunity um, to come clean, had the opportunity um, to, to say, uh, you know, what were we thinking? What were we doing? Let's, um, let's get back to uh, the democratic process as we knew it. Uh, this, what happened on January 6th is just, you know, unacceptable. We need an investigation. We need um, to, to get back to our tradition of democracy in this country and uh, a 
bipartisan, bicameral investigation would be part of it. And you have to look back at that period and you have to blame not just Kevin McCarthy, but Mitch McConnell and all the Republicans uh, who, who decided, uh, no, in the end, we're going to stick with Donald Trump because we think uh, that's our route back to power. Um, they chose power over democracy. And, and after making that decision in that period, um, that has sort of led us to where we are now, where one of our two political parties um, just is, it does no longer believes in, in democracy as we have known it uh, for these past two centuries. emerged as a crucial issue for voters in the upcoming midterm elections. According to a poll conducted by the organization Her Time, 49% of women say the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe has made them more likely to vote for a Democrat in the midterms without identifying the candidate's position on abortion. This includes 28% of non-democratic likely voters and even 12% of women who voted for former President Donald Trump in 2020. The survey also found 82% of young women cast their votes solely on the basis of a candidate's position on abortion, regardless of that candidate's stance on most other issues. Those numbers are from the Her Time Pack, which is dedicated to mobilizing and supporting politically inclined young women. And it was founded by our next guest, former Democratic Congresswoman from California, Katie Hill. Katie, it's good to have you on the show. So um, give us a sense of, uh, take us behind the numbers, especially the 82% uh, and the number of women who say this is their only issue as they cast their ballot on election day. Sure. I mean, this was, we commissioned this poll in five key congressional districts uh, on abortion. Really, this is about how do we hold the House? We needed to figure out not just, we had this sense, right, that women were mobilized after the Dobbs decision. But for me, it was about how do we operationalize this? How do we make sure that we basically don't screw this up, that we use this as uh, as our chance to, to really change the tide on the midterms? So um, I founded my PAC her time based on the idea that it's young women who can and will change politics and frankly if this moment doesn't mobilize us nothing will um, I believed and felt in my soul that young women were mad we're going to show up and change the projected tra trajectory of the midterms uh, and we saw that shifting tide in Kansas we shot, saw it in New York and Alaska and we're seeing it in the national polling but we needed that energy to translate in the key swing districts as you know across the country mm -hmm. in order to hold the razor's thin margin of house in order to uh, to basically codify Roe right to, to if we lose the house then it's not going to happen. We're not going to be able to codify Roe. The Republicans are going to move forward on this national ban. And uh, and women across the country, we're going to move closer and closer to this handmaid's tale dystopia. So I was afraid that having been inside the rooms where a democratic strategy is decided, I was deeply afraid we get this wrong. Um, so our poll was figuring out how to operationalize this in those districts, in those key districts. Uh, and it's about those young women. It's, we're a massive district demographic that needs to be mobilized, and we can, but it's not something we can take for granted. And there's definitely a danger that some Democrats will think it's a guarantee that we'll show up. 
So exactly. You know, he so okay. with six weeks left. Yeah, I'm curious what you uh, what you mean, and when you look at those those young people, there's one other issue that can be confounding when you're trying to make you know major inroads on election day, and that is whether they show up. So it's one thing to feel really strongly about an issue, but how much confidence you have from these results that these women are going to show up at the polls. So we need to communicate to them and we need to communicate to them where they are. What we found was that if we communicate the message that the GOP is as extreme as we know they are, um, we found that young women are particularly mobilized when we talk about the Republican notion that women should actually be criminalized for seeking abortions. And that's the future that we're headed towards. Remember, Donald Trump has actually said very clearly that there has to be some sort of form of punishment for women who have abortion. In the Louisiana State House, almost half of Republicans in the State House voted to treat abortion as actual murder. Um, and this trend is happening more and more. So we should be telling that to women, uh, it, you know, we, especially young women. Um, we have we have uh, 68% of uh, uh, pro-choice Democrats who are not currently likely to vote. But if you remind them about this and about the stakes, that it makes them more motivated to turn out. So what we're doing with her time is we're running digital ad campaigns in these crucial districts, like the ones we pulled, targeting young women on platforms like TikTok and Instagram, where they are um, with this winning message. And if all the different groups that are spending millions of dollars on elections right now in these key districts do the same thing, rather than focusing on issues that aren't going to win us the election, right, uh, then we actually can have a chance in November. All right, former Congresswoman Katie Hill, thank you very much for being on the show this morning. We appreciate it. And... Thank <laughs>